Good morning. Tom continues his series through the book of John. We'll be reading this morning John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, She stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, take me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and then he had said these things to her. So that when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. 
and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in their presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Lord Jesus, may everyone in the hearing of these words believe and have life in your name. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Blessings on this Resurrection Sunday. Exactly six years ago to the day on April 1st of 2012, I stood up here and preached the first message in this role as teaching elder. And uh, it was April 1st. That's not a joke. <laughs> and on that day, you know, as I got ready for that day, I... I sort of charted out my sermons to make sure that when we got to this day, we would land in the resurrection passage in the Gospel of John. That's a joke. <laughs> I came across a rather surprising online article yesterday via the, the news feed on my phone. And what made it surprising was where it came from. The Wall Street Journal the article was entitled The Easter Effect and How It Changed the World. The writer, George Wagle, who's from the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., said that the reason that the Roman emperor, Constantine, in A.D. 312, ended all legal sanctions against Christians in the Roman Empire was because, quote, he was a politician who had shrewdly decided to join the winning side. He explained then that by the early 4th century, Christians likely counted for somewhere between a quarter and a half of the population of the Roman Empire. And their exponential growth seemed likely to continue. And then he asked the question, how did this happen? How did a ragtag band of nobodies from the far edges of the Mediterranean world become such a dominant force in just two and a half centuries? And then he said what happened to them was the Easter effect, which he defined as the effect on all those nobodies of their encounter with the one whom they embraced as the risen Lord. End quote. That effect is still occurring. Nobodies like you and me are still encountering the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it changes everything for everyone who comes to behold Him and to know Him and to trust Him. What actually happened on that Sunday morning nearly 2,000 years ago, the Sunday that we celebrate each year on this particular Sunday? Well, what happened <laughs> was the long-promised bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John tells us early in this great chapter, John 20, that when he and Peter came to the open tomb after Mary Magdalene had told them that the stone had been rolled away, they looked into the tomb and they saw linen wrappings where the body of Jesus had been. 
And they saw the, the body wrappings in one place and the headcloth in another place. In verses 8 and 9, John says of himself, speaking in the third person, he saw and believed. And then he explains that until that point, none of the disciples had understood the Scripture that said that Jesus would be resurrected from the dead. Now when the Gospels refer to the Scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. So what Old Testament Scripture had foretold the resurrection of Jesus? Well, John made a similar reference back in chapter 2, right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers at the Jerusalem temple on another Passover two years before this one. The Jews at that temple, maybe three years, the Jews at that temple asked Him for a sign to prove that He had authority to do such a thing. And what did He say to him? He said, here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now they and the disciples thought he was talking about the the building, the, the temple structure. But John tells us that he was talking about his own physical body, about his own death and resurrection. The very next verse in John 2 says, So when... When He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. Now, what Old Testament passage had prophesied the resurrection of Jesus? Well, one of you who has a paper Bible with cross-references, go to John chapter 2, verse 22, and look in your margin and tell me when it says they believed the Scripture, what Old Testament passage does it point to? John 2.22. Psalm 16, verse 10, right? Psalm 16.10. Almost every Bible that has cross-references points there. Psalm 16 is a psalm of King David written a thousand years before Jesus came from heaven to earth and took on our humanity. In verses 8-10 to of that psalm, Here's here's what it says. I have set Yahweh continually before me, therefore I will not be shaken. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also, my flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In his great sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter declares very clearly that when David wrote those words a thousand years earlier, he knew, he knew that he was speaking prophetically of the future resurrection of the Christ. In fact, David knew he was speaking the words of the Christ. Paul said essentially the same thing in Acts chapter 13 about the same psalm. And Psalm 16 allows for only one interpretation with regard to what kind of resurrection was being prophesied. And it exactly matches up with what the disciples actually saw and touched and heard the day that Jesus was raised from the grave. It was a bodily, physical resurrection. 
His spirit was reunited with his body and his body was given life again. But the body that God remade and transformed that morning was not like his old body. It was now an immortal, imperishable body, untouched by the curse. And God, by the way, did not need to roll that stone away to let Jesus out. He rolled the stone away so that the followers of Jesus and the enemies of Jesus could see that He wasn't there anymore. And that body is the template for the resurrection bodies that you and I will receive on our resurrection day. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and we are the latter fruits. We who believe in Jesus and belong to Him. So, you know, what that means is all the redeemed locksmiths will have different jobs in the kingdom. Because when Jesus came into the room where the disciples had gathered and they had carefully closed the door for fear of the Jews, He didn't bother to open the door. He just appeared in their presence. He did that not once, but twice. He did it again eight days later. See, what happened that Resurrection Sunday, and this is important, was the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And His resurrection changes everything for us who belong to Him. Here in chapter 20, John records four transforming effects. Four ways that Christ's resurrection now impacts us. Each one of them tells us things about Him, but it also tells us things about us. First, because He lives, we're going where He went. When Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene outside the tomb, He said to her, Mary, stop clinging to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to My brethren and say to them, I ascend to My Father and your Father, to My God and your God. What beautiful words. In Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us that fairly early in his earthly ministry, Jesus had delivered a woman named Mary Magdalene from seven demons. From that point forward, Mary had steadfastly followed Jesus everywhere he went. Jesus knew the heart of this dear, devout woman who loved him with all that she had. He knew that if she had it in her power... (laughs) She would keep him here on earth. And he said, don't cling to me. See, he was not raised from the dead to stay here on this cursed earth. He was raised to go to his Father. And the risen Christ would not remain here very long. At the beginning of John chapter 14, he already had said to his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And at that point, Thomas said, no, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way to get there? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, truth, and the life. And no one 
comes to the Father except through me. See, it was all about Him getting us to the Father. We serve a living Savior, and because He lives and has gone before us into His Father's presence, we know that when He raises us from the dead in the likeness of His own resurrection, it will be in order that we might be with Him where He is in the presence of His Father from then on and forevermore. That promise is the anchor of our souls while we remain here to finish the work that He has given us to do. The second transforming impact that Christ's resurrection has on us is this. Because He lives, we have His peace. Three times in this passage, verse 19, verse 21, verse 26, Jesus said to His disciples, peace be with you. The disciples were huddled in a room on that first Sunday with the door closed for fear of the Jews. He appeared in their midst and the very first thing He said to them was, peace be with you. And the second thing that He said to them was, peace be with you. And when He appeared to them yet again in that same room eight days later, the first thing that He said to them was, peace be with you. In John 14, He had said to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The one who had just conquered death itself now says to you and to me, just as He said to those disciples, peace be with you. The grave, beloved, cannot hold us because it could not hold Him. And if even death is no threat to us, <laughs> what threat remains? At the end of that article from the Wall Street Journal that I was citing at the beginning, the writer talked about, quote, the curious and inexplicable joy that marked the early Christians even as they were being marched off to execution. And then he asked, was that joy simply delusion or denial? And then he says, no. It was the joy of people who had become convinced that they were witnesses to something inexplicable, but nonetheless true. Something that gave a superabundance of meaning to life and that erased the fear of death. Something that had to be shared. Something with which to change the world. End quote. In the Bible, brothers and sisters, peace is not a feeling. It is the pervasive well-being that comes from being rightly related to the One who controls all well-being. And joy is the response of people who have peace. It's the response of people whose situation is peace. Those for whom it is well. You know what the word shalom means? It means pervasive well-being in all aspects of life because of relationship with God. In the Old Testament, that's what that word means. When Jesus was raised from the tomb, He was raised 
never to be touched by the curse of our sin again. Ever. And God promises us who belong to Him that our resurrection will be in the likeness of His resurrection. You know what that means, beloved? It means it is well with our souls. It means His well-being is our well-being. It means that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. As we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen last forever. 2 Corinthians 5. My dear brother Clifford often says to me, as as I know he says to many of you, two beautiful, powerful, world-changing words. He walks up and he says, God's peace. When we say that to each other as believers, you know what we're actually saying? We're saying Christ's well-being is your well-being. The second time in this passage that Jesus said the words, peace be with you to His disciples, He then immediately said, as the Father sent Me, so I send you. And that brings us to the third transforming impact that His resurrection has on us. Because He lives, the One who sends us into the world goes with us. In the very next verse, verse 22, Jesus breathed on the disciples and He said, receive the Holy Spirit. That act was symbolic. And we know it was symbolic rather than literal because Jesus had already very explicitly told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would not come to them until He had gone and returned to His Father, until He had ascended. So He was simply saying, I'm about to send you. And then He said, receive the Holy Spirit. And He was associating those two ideas. You are sent, and I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit actually came upon and indwelled the disciples 50 days later on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And what we must not miss here in John 20 is this critical connection between Christ's sending of the disciples and His promise of the indwelling Spirit. See, we who belong to Christ have been sent into this world as His agents, His ambassadors. And because He lives, we aren't alone. We're not left to our own devices. We're not left to our own power. We're not even left to our own words. In John chapter 14, Jesus said to His disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see Me, but you will see Me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in My Father, and you in Me, and I in you. Sounds like the high priestly prayer, doesn't it? In John 17. Three verses later, He said to them, if anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him. And listen, and we, My Father and I, will come to Him and make our abode, our dwelling place with Him. He has not left us as orphans, beloved. In the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have pitched their tent in us. 
Jesus said to His disciples at the end of the Great Commission, the very last verse in Matthew's Gospel, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verse 23 tells us what He has sent us to do. That verse has caused a lot of uh, commentators a lot of heartburn, but I believe it's much simpler than we tend to make it. Right after saying to the disciples that He was sending them as the Father had sent Him, and then right after saying, receive the Holy Spirit, His next words to them were, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. I can say with great confidence that Jesus was not saying, you guys get to decide whose sins get forgiven and whose don't. That's not what He was saying. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says, there is only one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ, Jesus. We don't get that seat. Our assignment is simply to proclaim to this world what God has already clearly revealed about man's sin. When a man or a woman or a child comes to believe, to trust in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have the wonderful privilege and responsibility as agents of Christ to tell that person that his sins have been forgiven. All of them forever. On the other hand, if he rejects Jesus, and turns away from the one and only provision to pay the eternal debt that he owes to God because of his sin, we, as the agents of Christ, have the responsibility to tell him that his sins have been retained. That until and unless he puts his faith in Jesus Christ alone, he still bears the guilt and still bears the full eternal penalty. For his sin. For my next door neighbor Shelby, that was the news that completely rocked his world. And the forgiveness of God and Jesus Christ was the news that gave him life by the work of the Holy Spirit, not me. Isn't that marvelous? God sends us into the world as his agents, and then he tells us what to say. <laughs> and then he the Spirit empowers what He told us to say. And transforms the hearts of people and brings them out of the darkness into the light, out of death into life forever. We who belong to Jesus have been sent into this world to proclaim forgiveness of sin, to proclaim the free gift of eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And because He lives... We know that He's right here with us and in us as we go about that marvelous work. The fourth transforming impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on us is the theme of all of verses 24 to 31 in this passage. Because He lives, we have all that we need to believe in Him. The witness of the Father to the Son was perfectly proclaimed through His resurrection. That witness is not merely sufficient, friends. It is undeniable. 
The word believe occurs roughly 250 times in the New Testament. Anybody want to guess how many of those times are in John's Gospel? Roughly half. 108. 108 times. I'd say that the call to believe in Jesus is a pretty big deal in John's Gospel. Seven of those instances are in verses 24 to 31 of this chapter. In verse 25, Thomas the doubter, who had not been in the room the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples, the resurrected Christ, said to them, Thomas said to those other guys, unless I see the imprint of the nails in his hand and the hole in his side and touch them, he said, unless I see them and put my finger into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. Pretty clear, right? The second time Jesus appeared again in the same room in which the disciples were gathered, Thomas was there. And after condescending to allow Thomas to physically touch the nail scars in his hands and the wound from the spear in his side, Jesus then said to Thomas, be not unbelieving, but believing. See, every reasonable cause for Thomas to doubt that Jesus was alive from the dead had been blown away. And it was time for Thomas to believe. And friends, if you are here today and you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, it is time for you to believe in Him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the perfect proof of every single claim that the Bible makes about Jesus from cover to cover. It is the capstone of the Father's witness to the Son. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Psalm 53 tells us that Messiah's resurrection is proof that God accepted His guilt offering of Himself in our place as the full and satisfactory payment of our debt to God. And that's why God then extended His days and gave Him offspring and exalted Him. It was all planned. It was going to happen. But He had to die in our place. He had to secure our forgiveness. And then He had to be raised. And I said Psalm 53. I meant Isaiah 53. Here in verses 30 and 31, John brings us to the conclusion of all that he has written about Jesus. (laughs) And it's no accident that he puts those two verses right here immediately after the first appearances of the resurrected Christ to his disciples. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest sign of all. It is the greatest proof of the truth of the Gospel that we proclaim. John says, verses 30 and 31, many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, culminating in this last one, (laughs) have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Brothers and sisters, most people, most people will reject the Gospel of Jesus Christ when you share it with them. When you share Him with them. But their rejection will never, ever be because God has not provided good enough evidence for them to believe it. That will never be the case. You know what the greatest apologetic for Jesus is? 
the resurrection. Because He lives, we know that we will one day be where He is in the presence of His Father. Because He lives, we have not just peace, we have His peace. Because He lives, we know that the One who sends us into this world goes with us every second of every day. And because He lives, we know that we have all that we need to believe and we have all that we need in order that other people might believe. I want to finish up this morning by considering two object lessons in this passage about seeing and believing. The first of those object lessons comes to us in the person of Mary Magdalene. And the lesson is those who stay longer see better. After Peter and John saw the grave clothes in the empty tomb, they hightailed it out of there and the text says they went to their homes. And then obviously they gathered with other disciples. But Mary Magdalene was in no hurry. She stayed behind outside that tomb weeping. Makes me think of the first two Beatitudes in Matthew 5. I'll let you look that up. Then stooping down to look into the grave, just as John had done, she saw. But she saw something more than Peter and John had seen. She saw two angels, one sitting where Jesus' head had been, one sitting where His feet had been. And then she saw something infinitely greater than an empty tomb. Infinitely greater than empty grave clothes. Infinitely greater than the two angels. She saw the resurrected Jesus. This was a woman who was never in a hurry to be anywhere that Jesus wasn't. <laughs> Even when she thought the best that that would look like was just to be close to His body, to His tomb. And beloved, those who stay longer see better. How did the disciples know where the tomb of Jesus was? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus put Him in that tomb in the dark, in secret. Mark's Gospel tells, that, tells us that as they were doing that, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where Jesus was laid. I think there were as many Marys among the first followers of Jesus as there are Debbies at Community Bible Chapel. And this is a good point a good spot to point out the critical role of women in the world-changing events that were unfolding here at the end of John's Gospel. Men, listen for a minute. It was women who never took their eyes off the body of Jesus after His death and who thus knew where the body had been buried so they could tell the disciples that the stone had been rolled away. It was women who first discovered the empty tomb. It was women who saw and spoke with the angels at the tomb. It was women to whom the resurrected Jesus first made Himself known and with whom He first spoke. It was women who told the disciples that the tomb was empty and then told the disciples that they had seen and spoken with the resurrected Christ. And by the way, guys, here's what Luke says about the disciples' response to the women's announcement that they had talked to Christ. 
It says those words appeared to those men as nonsense and they would not believe them. Luke 24.11 I don't know about the other men in this room, but I can tell you that my wife's prayer closet gets a lot more wear and tear than mine does. And I say that to my own shame. But it's true. And it's been my observation over the 45 plus years of my life as a believer in Jesus Christ that that is generally true of believing women as compared with believing men. In the Gospels, it was not a man who was singled out in Luke 10 as sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to Him with delight. It was not men who poured expensive ointment on Jesus' head and feet or who washed His feet with their tears and with their hair. Men, including the disciples of Jesus, are instead portrayed in those same passages as complaining that such actions were terribly wasteful. While the perfect man Jesus commended those women for their actions and memorialized them with His words. Maybe we men should pay a little more attention to how godly women respond to Jesus. And maybe we would do well to learn from them that those who stay longer see better. The second object lesson I see in this passage about seeing and believing comes to light when you compare the response of Thomas at the end of the chapter with the response of John at the beginning of the chapter. After Jesus allowed Thomas to touch the scars in his hands and his side and said to him, be not unbelieving, but believing, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So who in this passage believed before seeing the resurrected Christ? Just one person. The man who wrote this Gospel, John. Back in verse 8, John told us that when he looked in the open tomb and saw the grave clothes, the empty grave clothes of Jesus, he saw and believed. It doesn't mean he believed the tomb was empty. Give me a break. Bob said that in his commentary. <laughs> Give me a break. No, I mean, I mean, he said, how can people, how can commentators say that? Doesn't make any sense. That, that's not news. No, he believed. He believed. But he hadn't yet seen the resurrected Jesus. Verse 9 explains what happened to John at that point. When he looked into that empty tomb, he remembered what the Scriptures had said and he no doubt also remembered what Jesus had said. See, Jesus had very openly told the disciples repeatedly about His imminent death and resurrection. But they had repeatedly pushed those words as far out of their thinking as they could possibly get them because they didn't like those words at all. But when John looked into the tomb, 
purely by God's grace, He connected the ancient dots with the recent dots. And He knew that Jesus had been raised just as God had long before promised. In Jesus' words to Thomas later in the chapter, we learn that John received the greater blessing because Jesus said, blessed is he who believes without seeing. You ever thought about the fact that apart from the 500 or so people who got to see Jesus physically after His resurrection and before His ascension, every other person in history who has ever come to trust in Christ has come to faith without ever actually seeing the resurrected Christ in the flesh. Unless some of you are a whole lot older than you look, that applies to everybody in this room who belongs to Christ. But here's what's really great. Brothers and sisters, we are more richly blessed than Thomas was. We are more richly blessed than Peter was. We are more richly blessed than Mary Magdalene was. Why? Because purely by God's grace, we found the Father's witness to His Son to be sufficient. Not just sufficient, but undeniable. And the only way it's crazy Here we have the greatest forensic evidence in the history of the world. We have 1,500 years of prophets saying the same thing about the same person with perfect unanimity. And then we have Jesus coming from heaven to earth and doing what they said He would do. And then we have the apostles telling us what He did. And we have more than 500 people who could have refuted the testimony who saw the resurrected Jesus And nobody came forward and said, no, that's not right. You'll never, you will never sit in a court of law with that strong a case. Ever. And yet, the gospel that we proclaim to most people is absolute nonsense. The only way anybody, the only way anybody comes to recognize and be absolutely absolutely convinced that this is the truth is by the work of the Holy Spirit. And and you know what that means? That means you don't have to persuade people. You you try. I mean, you say the things that you believe will lay the case out for them, but you have no responsibility before God to change another person's heart. Isn't that great? It's very freeing. All you've got to do is pass along the witness of the Father to the Son. That's all you got to do. And pray a lot. Because you're not the one who changes anybody. Romans 10.17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. You notice it doesn't say faith comes from seeing. That Word is this whole book. This is the Word of, the Word concerning Christ from cover to cover. It's what God has placed in our hands to point lost souls to the one and only Savior. And it is the Holy Spirit working through His Word who makes this testimony perfect. One brother at our Wednesday sermon discussion said, you know, if you want to introduce someone to Jesus, it seems to me a great way to do it would be to read this Gospel together with them. You ever thought of asking someone to do that? If God has His hand on that person, man, woman, or child, and you sit down and you read this Gospel with them, they're going to meet Jesus. 
They're going to behold Jesus just like we've been beholding Him for the last year as we've gone through this Gospel. And they're going to see the worthiness and the beauty and the majesty and the perfection and the godness of Jesus Christ. And if God has His hand on them, they will believe. How will you respond to the resurrected Christ? There's still one chapter here, but at this critical point in John's Gospel, we have a response required of every single one of us, not just the unbelievers. John's faithful proclamation of the resurrected Christ demands a response. For unbelievers, what's in this Gospel is what you need to know to believe so that you will have eternal life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the capstone to that compelling, undeniable proof. How will you respond to Christ's own command to you to be not unbelieving, but believing? I pray with all my heart that this will be the day that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and receive everlasting life. For the believers in this room, the risen Christ says to you, My peace is yours. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And I have given you my Holy Spirit to be your power and your illumination and your love and your connection with God all the time, every day. Beloved, we have the amazing assignment to proclaim the crucified and resurrected Christ to this whole world. And there is no better job in the universe. For a prayer, very quickly, I just uh, we don't have time to sing it. I'm going to read you some verses from the great hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Listen, listen to this. Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, Alleluia! Raise your joys and triumphs high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Love's redeeming work is done. <laughs> Fought the fight. The battle won. Death in vain forbids Him rise. Christ has opened paradise. Lives again, our glorious King. Where, O oh death, is now thy sting? Dying once, He all doth save. Wear thy victory, O grave. Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head, made like Him. In Him we rise. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. We thank You, Father, for this magnificent promise. And we give every bit of the praise and glory to our Savior, our God, Jesus Christ. Amen.